So, Mark 7, verse, uh, starting at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Thank you, Lord. Thanks, Will. I'm going to invite Caleb up. Uh, I'll pray for you as uh, we begin. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, its uh, record of the Lord Jesus and the great truths it's, it contains that gives us all we need for salvation, wisdom, and good works. We pray for Caleb as he speaks to us now that you'd be at work through him. And we pray that we would hear you speak in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us all to start by thinking about lunch after the service today. I know that thoughts of lunch are what the Sunday morning preacher is usually competing against. But this time you have the preacher's permission. Enjoy it while you can, this time without guilt. But really, imagine that you're invited after church for lunch with friends at their home just down the street. Imagine that you're extremely hungry, maybe you are. You arrive, they welcome you in, they ask how the service was today. Eventually they inform you that dinner is ready, and you all sit down around their table On the serving platters, however, is one potato, a chicken leg, and a spoonful of broccoli. It becomes clear that the one potato, the chicken leg, and the spoonful of broccoli are all that have been prepared for lunch today. And this is supposed to feed the entire party. The host divides the meager rations, and before you know it, your plate is empty again, and so is your stomach. The whole time, your host is chatting about how hard life has been the past few months as he has lost his job and they've been really struggling to make ends meet. But meanwhile, all you can think about is how hungry you still are. If you were in this situation, how would you feel? What would be going through your mind? At a normal Sunday afternoon dinner, you wouldn't hesitate to ask for second helpings. But this time, despite your hunger... Would you presume to ask your hosts for more food? In today's story from Mark chapter 7, we hear of a woman who wasn't even invited to the table, yet she has so much faith that she invites herself to the table and even asks for seconds. 
I hope that we will be inspired by her example to adopt the same attitude of faith toward Jesus. And I also hope to show that if we do, how that faith will change our motivation for our family, our friends, our neighbors, here and around the world. So to accomplish that, there are just two parts to the sermon today. We will look at the text of the story itself, and then at how the story affects our faith. So, the text and application. In the first part, when we look at the text, we will learn what the, who the characters in the story are, their background, the geographical and cultural setting, and, uh, importantly, the conversation that forms the centerpiece of Mark's account. In the second part, we will try to discern what all that has to do with our faith today. We'll look at the miracle and how it can affect our relationship with God and how it can affect our interactions with others. And you've been told that I'm speaking on the topic of why be a missionary. And this might seem like a strange passage to answer that question. There are many bits of scripture which could have addressed that question. There are many answers that the Bible gives us on why we should be missionaries. But I promise that this story of the woman and the truth that it reveals about God reveals a very primary motivator for me toward why I chose to be a missionary, uh, and also just how it can be a motivator to all of us as we uh, share Jesus with others. Not only will you not be afraid to ask for second helpings, but you'll be inviting all your friends to the feast as well. I hope. In verse 25, we meet the main character of the story besides Jesus. She is, um, we don't learn her name, but she is a woman in desperation. We know that she's desperate because she's groveling at Jesus' feet. A posture of abject humility and submission. She is begging Jesus for help because she has nothing else to turn to. Her daughter, we learn, is suffering terribly. A demon has possessed her. Can you imagine the grief that this mother must feel? I think of, I know uh, parents who have children who are suffering from health problems and uh, they do anything in their power to, to get the help that their child needs. And I think the mother is feeling the same thing here. Even just to accost Jesus, to suddenly speak to him out of the blue, she has to overcome many social barriers. She is a woman approaching a man in a society which kept the sexes separate and ranked with men like Jesus at the top of the totem pole and women like her underneath. Additionally, she is a woman with an impure spirit in her household, Many in that day would have spurned her and the girl's father for this uncleanness in their midst. It was often interpreted as a sign of divine disapproval and judgment. How could a demon gain such a foothold in a pure family? Perhaps the mother herself felt a cloud of guilt over this situation, a a voice inside her whispering, did I do something wrong? to inflict this on my daughter? Whether or not there was any real guilt, there was almost certainly shame. And this lady who housed impurity was 
ignoring this supposed contamination to approach a holy man. If Jesus were to be considered a good Jew by his fellow countrymen and religious leaders, he should not have even been talking to this woman. When Matthew tells the same story in his book, he adds that Jesus' disciples actually advised Jesus to immediately send her away. No wonder she fell at his feet and begged. Her daughter's need drove her to it, but her social status required that she do it with public abjection and self-humiliation. There's one more social hurdle which she had to surmount in order to win Jesus' ear. The writer Mark goes to great pains to make sure that we, the readers, understand that she is a Gentile, not a Jew. Verse 26 says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Up until now in the story of Jesus being told in Mark's gospel, the Jew, Jesus, has almost exclusively been ministering in Jewish towns and villages, to the apparent exclusion of non-Jews. He has been preaching with authority. He has been performing miracles, healing sick people, calming storms, walking on water. Notably for the story this morning, he has just fed bread to over 5,000 people, probably mostly Jews. In doing all this, he has been declaring to the Jewish people that he is their Messiah, their promised king. He has also been proving that he is more than just a man, that he is indeed God's son, God in the flesh. This is all well and good for the Jews. They've been expecting the Messiah for more than a thousand years. But many of the Jews, especially the ones who most zealously observed their religious traditions of devotion, that is, the Pharisees and scribes, come into conflict with Jesus because he does not follow the same man-made traditions that they do, and they perceive this as irreverent to God and threatening to the status quo. In the verses immediately preceding this story in Mark chapter 7, Jesus and the Pharisees yet again have a sharp disagreement. They argue about what makes someone unclean. The Jewish teachers of the law insist that outward rituals, the theater of loveless actions like washing hands and cleaning cooking utensils, is what makes a person acceptable before God. (coughs) Jesus knows what is in our hearts and answers them by pointing out that a clean pot in which the soup boils does not atone for the thoughts of hatred in the one who stirs it, or that washed hands before supper does not help the heart of greed which the person who's washing their hands might have. And so, those of us who often appear to be following God most ardently actually end up rejecting God's messenger in our midst, because he exposes the sin and folly within us, toward which we'd rather turn a blind eye. Verse 24 starts out with, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. When it says he left that place, it's referring to the towns of Bethsaida and Gennesaret, which are predominantly Jewish towns where he'd just been, and that's where he was when he had this argument 
with the Pharisees. He walks right out of that conversation with the Pharisees, and Mark continues and says, he went away to the region of Tyre. Uh, Tyre and nearby Sidon are places where the populations were mostly comprised of pagan Gentiles, not Jews. Jews had as few dealings with the Gentiles as possible for their cultural ways of doing everyday tasks, their religious practices, even their diet, caused them to be repulsively unclean to the Jews who lived quite differently. For a Jew to touch a Gentile or enter a Gentile house would cause uncleanness to be transferred from the Gentile to the Jew, and this resulted in extensive purification ceremonies. But Jesus wasn't afraid of uncleanness, so he publicly argues with those Jewish leaders about what is truly unclean, makes a point to leave them, and enters the supposed Paul of a pagan stronghold, teeming with impurity. So we've studied the characters which Mark introduces us to. We've, we have the, the Gentile woman. We have the Jew, Jesus. We've looked at the, some of the cultural and geographic social settings. That is, cross-cultural travel in a pagan area. Let's listen to what they say to one another. Verse 27. First, this is Jesus speaking. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. To us today, 21st century readers in England who are not attuned to the cultural differences between ancient Gentiles and Jews, we may be shocked and surprised at Jesus' refusal to heal the woman's daughter in verse 27. Yet to the people standing around witnessing this interchange, it was probably expected. A good Jewish man would not grant a pagan Gentile woman's request. So Jesus uses a metaphor to rebuff the woman, painting her a picture with his words. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Uh, in this word picture, there would have been at least three references which would have been clearly categorized by the listeners, including the woman. There's the children, there's the dogs, and there's the bread. The children is probably the most obvious reference. It's the Jewish people. God formed and chose the Jewish nation out of Abraham's promised descendants, and he even calls them his children in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. They are the children of God. The second picture, the metaphor of the dogs, here represents Gentiles. And indeed, in those days, many Jews would often disparagingly refer to their Gentile neighbors as dogs because of their unclean practices. And the third picture in the metaphor is bread, a very rich metaphor. Bread refers to kingdom blessings promised to the Jewish people as God's children. Ever since the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, 
God was blessing his people Israel with land, his laws, his protection, his prophetic messages, and more. Paul lists out these blessings in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, saying that to the Jews belong the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Jesus, who has been announcing his kingship to the Jews for seven chapters in Mark to this point, is saying that it is right for the Jews to receive the promised blessing as God's children, ushered in by himself, rather than for him to be spending a lot of his time at that point, bothering with that other part of the Abrahamic blessing, all nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Bread has been a metaphor for God's salvation, for the satisfaction of his people, ever since the manna miraculously fell every morning, six days a week, in the wilderness, during the Israelites' formative years as a nation. God took care of his people by providing them with that bread, and here Jesus is basically saying that God's favor, the blessings of his kingdom, are prioritized for the Jews. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. So if we take those three pictures, the children, the dogs, and the bread, and we put them all together, what do we have? We have an image of a household maybe making ends meet, but not much more. Uh, It's an image which I think my time living in Lesotho has helped me understand more clearly than before. Lesotho is a very poor nation. Food insecurity for many is a regular worry. The staple food is maize, and the maize is dried, ground into a maize flour, and then boiled in water until a thick, doughy, and sometimes crumbly food is made called papa. Papa would be to the Basotho people what bread was to the ancient Jews. Eaten at nearly every meal, almost always, in Lesotho's case, served with a more nutritious dish to complement the maize meal, such as beans, spinach, pumpkin, or on a good day, chicken. <coughs> also in Lesotho, many families do keep dogs for guarding their homes or guarding the flocks. Even though the dogs are valued because they guard, they usually are not well fed because of the food insecurity. The family's pot for cooking their maize meal, their papa, is kept separate from the dog's pot for cooking the dog's maize meal, the dog's papa. And the dog's food is usually cooked more hastily and with less concern for its quality. The dogs hardly ever get to taste the human food as there's not that much to go around. And the dogs usually eat once a day. So you can imagine, um, oh, also the dogs are kept outside in Lesotho. Now, I don't know in Jewish time, in you know, ancient Israel, whether dogs were allowed inside the houses or not. Uh, my guess is that judging from what I've learned about how Jewish people view dogs as unclean and Basotho people feel similarly, they probably also kept their dogs outside. 
I think the picture Jesus gives us is similar to the one I see played out before me in little mountain huts in Lesotho. It's a picture of scarcity. Small amounts of food that are available are carefully measured and guarded, so there's no occasion for waste or generosity toward the guard dogs. And, oh, I already said that. I would venture that the dogs were kept out. Jesus even says that um, the bread should not be tossed or thrown, in some translations, to the dogs, which, if it doesn't indicate outdoors, it at least indicates that the dogs are at a distance away because you have to throw it or toss it to them. Jesus appears to be saying that the focus of his ministry was to dispense rations of God's grace to the chosen children of Abraham, fulfilling the promises he made to them, not to the Gentiles who were, to that point in time, largely outside the community of faith. Can you put yourself in the woman's shoes, hearing that answer? It is not right to take the bread for the children and toss it to the dogs. It would not have been surprising if she would have just hung her head and walked away. However, she knew something about God and his mercy. Something which Jesus' word picture seems to not adequately portray. For with great audacity, she asserts, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. God has so much mercy. It's like crumbs falling all over the floor around the table where small children eat. Notice that the woman has taken the dogs from outside, or if not outside, at least being held away at some distance. And she moves them into the house, under the table, happily gobbling away amongst the children. Have you seen a child's place at the table during a meal? The child is happy because there's food in his belly. But there's also food smeared on his face, food sticking to his hands, food spilled all over the table, and yes, even food on the floor. I have young nieces and nephews who I was just visiting with, and there was food all over their area. (laughs) There's... So much food. Can you see it? All over the table and floor. No one is berating the child for having wasted a crumb. The parent is not scrambling beneath the table, trying to scavenge every morsel that falls. It's a picture of merry mercy, overflowing so that even the miserable dogs under the table, who don't deserve any of God's favor, still receive its benefits. His mercies are made new every morning. They are inexhaustible. Even the tiniest crumb of his mercy is enough to save someone. The woman affirms Jesus' picture, but she takes it further, turning it around to suit her plea for her daughter. Maybe she had heard of some of Jesus' other miracles, where he demonstrated his infinite nature as deity by touching other unclean people. In the gospel accounts, we read how Jesus touched a leper. He touched a widow's dead son. A woman who had an issue of blood touched his clothes. When Jesus touched these people, 
They became clean, but Jesus did not become unclean. He could purify them. In his omnipotence as God in the flesh, he could heal unclean people without taking that impurity on himself. This is ultimately proven by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Christ was killed, an impure death. Death has always been irreversible, the final result of impurity, the final result of demonic impact, the final result of disease. Yet in his infinite capacity as God, Jesus could not stay dead. He conquered death and disease and impurities of all kinds when he stepped out of that tomb early on Easter morning. Perhaps the woman had heard about another man in chapter 5 of Mark chapter 5. In the first six chapters of Mark's gospel, the only other time to that point that Jesus had apparently been among Gentiles was when, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he healed a man possessed by, by demons. He lived in the cemetery among the dead. It does not say whether that man was a Gentile or a Jew. We can guess from the geography of the region that many of the people who witnessed the miracle of his exorcism of that man would have been Gentile. The former demoniac, now free, wanted to be discipled further by Jesus to become one of his close followers. Instead, Jesus told him to return to his hometown and tell his family and his friends about what Jesus had done for him. And Mark informs us that the man returned, telling his testimony not only in his hometown, but traveling in ten cities of the region telling an audience which would have been majority Gentile about what Jesus the Jew had done for him. Had news traveled from those ten cities to Tyre and Sidon, where the woman lived? If Jesus could accept an unclean, demon-possessed man who lived among the dead, why could he not also show mercy in accepting a lowly Gentile woman with a demon haunting her house? the woman had learned something about God's mercy. It was so abundant, so overflowing, that just the knowledge of it inspired her to come to Jesus and ask for it. She did not look at God as a stingy government social worker, reluctantly giving out his few supplies. She did not look at him as a lottery operator or a sweepstakes administrator, inviting hundreds to play, but choosing just one to share in the spoils. She didn't even see him as probably many people of Palestine saw him, a Jewish miracle worker who might welcome worthy Jews to lavish on them God's favor, but who would rightly turn the lowly Gentiles away. No, she knew the truth somehow. God's mercy is free for any and all who will come, casting themselves on him and him alone. God's mercy is for the desperate, those who see their dire need for Jesus. God's mercy is for the sinful, those who are hopelessly unclean because of the repulsive actions they have done. God's mercy is for the shameful, those who do not deserve his attention and acceptance. Receive it nonetheless. So she counters, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
And Jesus replies to the woman, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. His authority somehow reaches out across the distance and saves that little girl's life from the oppressing unclean spirit. The reason he changes his mind is because of the woman's faith in nothing but God's free-flowing mercy found in Jesus. The bread of life has been made available to the outsider. I would like to take this example of God's abundant mercy, which the Gentile woman clung to in faith and which Jesus poured out on her, and see how it applies to us in two ways. First, what it means for us in our approach to God. And secondly, what it means for us in our relationships to others. What do we believe about God? And how does what we believe about him affect how we come to him? Do you doubt his rich mercy? Do you think you are somehow unworthy to receive his mercy? And maybe then offer up excuses why you don't come to him? We, we aren't worthy of his mercy. Yet it is free for all, for the outsider. Does guilt or shame keep you from coming to him? He invites us to bring those things, the guilt, the sin, the shame, to the foot of the cross and cast them on him. His death, his, his death will infinitely subsume anything you bring him. So don't make excuses. He is offering his mercy to us all. And how does God's overflowing mercy affect our interactions with other people? I'm going to take the example of the woman and take, uh, take it a step further. Um, Jesus referred to, in his picture, he referred to the Gentiles as dogs. Have you ever seen a hungry dog territorial over its food? If you approach that dog's bowl of food and try to take it away, often the hungry dog will snarl and you know, even, even my own dog, who is always kind, I have a dog in the suit too. He's a very friendly dog. If he's hungry and, I, and I've given him his food and he's eating away and I, you know, try to go and take his bowl, he does snarl at me. Uh, if, you can even see it. If another dog is hungry and tries to approach the dog, they'll actually get into a fight. However, if you feed even a large group of well-fed dogs, they'll happily share the food and eat away with one another, wagging their tails. This is how we are to be with the mercy that we've received from God. Like the well-fed dogs, the dogs who aren't concerned, is there going to be enough food? Is there going to be another meal? Surely, we walk in Jesus' footsteps in our times and places here on earth. We walk with the presence of his spirit to guide and comfort us. We walk with blessings from above. And if Jesus left his home area where Jewish customs and habits were familiar and went 
to another area, cross-culturally, healed a pagan woman's daughter from an oppressive demon because that woman had faith in God's relentlessly outpouring mercy, then shouldn't we also want to spread the experience of that same mercy? Don't we want to eat harmoniously with the other dogs, the other Gentiles around the table? What about the people around the world who are starving for mercy? Trapped in religious economies where grace is non-existent and God is just a frowning dispenser of tit-for-tat, punishment for evil, recompense for works done. There are systems of belief in the world where mercy is unknown and people give their scarce resources in order to appease the ancestors whom they fear knowing that the cycle of sacrifices will never be enough to permanently satisfy the ancestors. They are enslaved in fear and poverty because they don't know of the mercy, the free-flowing mercy for all types of people. All the while, there is a table which they can approach where the bread of life, Jesus himself, broken for them, is offered for them. John chapter 6 says, Jesus was given for the life of the world. And how can we keep that to ourselves? So we started out by asking, why be a missionary? There are many possible answers to that question, and many of them are right and good and biblical. In this story today, I find that perhaps the most compelling one is be a missionary so that more men and women more friends and family, more Jews and Gentiles, more British, more Americans, more Japanese, more Christians, more Muslims, more black, more white, more people who wear Marks and Spencers to the supermarket, and more who wear pajamas. More people who are like you, And more people who are not like you can hear about this bread. No longer just for the children, but now for one and all. Jesus taught near his hometown in his own culture. But he also left those places to go to Tyre and Sidon. And if he wouldn't have done that, we don't know. Maybe the demon-possessed girl would never have been set free from the spiritual oppression. We never would have seen the faith of her mother, who believed that God's mercy was for everyone, because it was infinite and accessible in Jesus. Are you still thinking about lunch? I am. (laughs) I know that Pastor Sam has been invited to a friend's house after the service. He's fairly certain that these friends will have an abundance of food, more than can be eaten. He'll probably ask for seconds. (laughs) He invited me too. That's the same attitude we should have. We go to God seeking all we need from him because of the promise of his mercy, but we also invite others to go along with us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
we pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ, your son, may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all your holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is your love. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all your fullness. Now to you who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.